Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everyone. Welcome once again to the Winning Digital Customers Show. I have an amazing guest for you today, Michael Abraham. He is the Senior Vice President of Digital Product at Fox and really has spent his whole career leading product teams in the media industry. He launched Epix's direct-to-consumer subscription service recently. Before that, he was in charge of innovation products at NBC Universal. He was with the Associated Press. Michael has multiple patents to his name. Just a really cool guy. I'm really happy he's here with us. And we're really going to talk a lot about product teams because I think that's a topic a lot of our listeners are dealing with every day. So, Michael, let me welcome you and ask you anything you want to add to that introduction, anything you want our listeners to know about you. No, thank you. I might record this and just play it out every time I meet people because that's the best introduction anyone has ever done for me. So thank uh-huh. you. Of course, my pleasure. I'm really excited to dive into talking about product teams because in my experience, you'll be really hard pressed to find any great digital product that was built by one single person who conceived it, designed it, built it, put up the infrastructure, deployed it. I mean, there could be an exception that proves that rule, but it seems to me that digital products is a team sport and figuring out how to bring people together in the right way and an effective way is the key to success, or at least one of the most important things in my experience. And I know that's your area of expertise. So let me start by asking you, do you agree with that? And what are the most important things when building and managing product teams? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think it's a really good way to sort of frame it and think about it. As the years went on, as I started to mature more and more with my thinking and sort of learn from my mistakes in product management, it's really always about understanding the problem you're trying to solve. And that understanding from time to time, we brush it off as an easy thing, but it's really honestly very difficult. And it comes from the top down. The leadership team needs to understand the problem they're trying to solve for the user, for the customer, for that repeated sort of visitation and, and the repeated habitual sort of experience for the user. And the product team needs to sort of get that from the leadership and work with them on sort of solving that problem. And once they do, they need to sort of break it down and work with the broader team, whether it's the project management team in an agile sort of framework, or whether it's the engineering team, the UI UX team, the product managers are sort of like right in the middle of all these different teams. And they're trying to get this vision communicated and also led. So they're really leaders in their own right in many ways. And it's never an easy role, but it's always a challenge, a great challenge, because you get to see the fruits of your work almost immediately as the user sort of interact with those experiences you're building. Yeah. Well, I totally agree that making sure the team clearly understands the problem. I always liken to this to sports, right? Because after all, with sports, we have a team and what's the problem? You know, got to get the ball down the field, into the end zone without doing certain things. When you talk about defining the problem, there's probably some business leaders that would say, we know what the problem is. We want to make more money. So product team, make us make more money. And sometimes that's not the clearest definition of a problem. How do you know, or how do you think about that issue and figuring out what's the right level of clarity or specificity with which to define a problem? Is there too much and is there too little and somewhere in the middle Goldilocks effect? How do you think about that? Yeah, I think you just nailed it there, didn't you? By saying, you know, we just want to make more money. That is the problem. And it is always the problem, isn't it? 
that's just too vague of a problem to be the problem for me. I mm. think leadership is really understanding the challenge, right? And the challenge could be, you know, being the best at what you do. Okay, that's great. That's very inspirational. But how do you break that down to a set of understandable challenges so that you can sort of inspire your team, whether it's the product management team or the teams around you to come up with the right ideas? And I think there is multiple ways you could do that. One way is to break it down to a set of KPI, key performance indicators levels and say, okay, we want to increase this part of the experience. We want the user to give us this type of satisfactory sort of experience back and tell us how they're doing. We want to increase the number of videos being watched or the number of ads being served or whatever it is. And these are like much clearer problems to communicate. Now, to what you just said, you said something very interesting, which is a common problem. A lot of the time in leadership, the leaders are obviously very smart people, right? Whether it's you know anywhere from the CEO all the way down, they end up not just communicating the problem, but how to solve it, right? Because they have good ideas and there's no doubt they do. But I think the right way to usually do it is to say, you know, we want to sort of increase this type of thing for the years, or we want to increase this metric and then have the product team come up with the ideas, whether it's through competitive analysis, their own sort of innovation, using data to sort of understand the little changes that are being made over time, and then come up with a list of changes themselves rather than being fed the answer. Because really, the, the leadership should really be building leaders underneath them rather than just building yes and no people that just do what they want. And I think in product management, that is one of the truest things that I've seen, you know, that sort of pull and push a little bit of like, do it this way rather than solve this problem for me. Yeah, I love thinking about it that way. And I never thought about it quite this way. But what you made me think of is it's really like, very often we need more specificity about the problem than product teams might be given sometimes, but less specificity about the solution to the problem. Sometimes I think we even get a really specific solution that we're not even clear on what problem it's solving. We're just told, go build this thing. <laughs> right. And that's funny you say that because that's what that happens in innovation a lot, right? You see products coming out and they're looking for a problem to solve rather than a problem. Because once we see a product, wherever it is, whether it's on TV, on late night, one of those like long commercials, or whether it's on like ads that we see, it's like, oh my God, what is that? That is brilliant. You know, and you just think of it as a, they've solved something for me and that's great. But in innovation often, you know, whether it's the big companies, even the tech companies or startups, they come up with a solution for it. So this is cool. All right, let's see if people are going to use this. And then they're not really aware of the problem. Sometimes it works and a lot of times it doesn't work. And it doesn't work just because it's kind of like a lost cause a little bit. It doesn't really know. It doesn't have an identity yet. It doesn't sell itself quite yet. Sometimes it goes away and then it comes back later because the problem sort of arose itself and people sort of mature to it. So it's a really interesting you say that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to the composition of a product team. So once you've defined a problem, and sometimes, of course, you might have a standing product team or in other cases, you're assembling a team. But how do you know, based on what the problem is, who do you need on the team? How big the team should be and what skills you need to make up that team? Yeah, really good point. And I think product managers and product leaders generally divide the team different ways, depending on how big of a team they have. I found myself, and I've seen this in media over and over again, uh, to your point earlier, is that depending on the type of product they have, you know, in the past, they would have like a mobile product manager or a OTT product manager or a web product manager. I've never really worked in that model so much. 
it never really worked for me. What I really like is to give the product manager the challenge and have them solve it with the rest of the team across the board. So let's just say introducing a new feature, a new page, you'd be like, solve this for every single sort of product we have. And this way, firstly, it's cheaper to sort of build, it's, it's cheaper to design, and then it's consistent across the board in terms of user experience. But to answer your question a bit more specifically, I think the way I've done it in the past, and I really liked it, is to build three tenants of product leaders and having an acquisition product leader, and that's somebody that's very familiar with funnels, uh, how to bring the users in, how to sort of like have them give us their credit card details or pay through one of the subscription models that are available on the different partners out there, whether it's Google, Apple, Roku, Amazon, or others. That person's very, very data-minded. You know, somebody is really getting to the details of like changing just small things in the question or like getting their credit card details first or giving them the button to subscribe next or getting their emails second, you know, really constantly testing and living in that environment constantly. That's what we call like sort of an acquisition leader. And the next one is the retention and what I call traditional product management. The user's already in. Now, the how do we keep them coming back? How do we keep them engaged? And, and sort of because we're competing for their time and their effort all the time, right? We have so many other apps, whether it's entertainment or news or information or even just fun sort of like experiences, social media, and, and we're competing for their time on their screen. So how do we get them to stay in our experience as long as possible? And that's the retention product manager, product leader part. And again, they use data and use all sort of other clever things to understand what the user is doing and what are the things that are working and what are the things that are not working and sort of changing their model according to that. And then lastly, it's the technical product manager. And, and that technical product manager is really a bridge between the product team and the technical engineering team. So there is two ways to do it, right? There used to be that the product manager writes a user story or some sort of an experience explaining what they're looking for. Then they throw the ball over the fence and say, okay, engineering team, build it. That technical product manager, sort of that bridge between those state teams, they're writing the technical stories, they're working with, they understand the code, they understand the infrastructure, the architecture of it, and they come up with the right sort of framework to solve that solution for the product manager, but they're one of them, so they solve it together. There's less of a divide and a fence between us and sort of like we're all sort of doing it together. So it's acquisition, retention, and technical. And that, that model has worked really well for me. Interesting. And so am I understanding that you might on one product have both an acquisition manager and a retention? In other words, it's not that there's products that are inherently acquisition-oriented versus ones that are retention, but within one product, you kind of have someone who's keeping an eye out for bringing in the customer and another person who has an eye out for retaining the customer. And then, of course, the bridge to the technology. Exactly right. That's, yeah, that's well said there. Exactly right. A lot of the products, you know, are going to be coming and it depends, again, if you're selling something on the internet, whether it's like you're selling socks, for example, or selling shampoo, you might want that acquisition part to be basically the center of your product. You want people to come back in, but their experience is in to stay there watching hours of content, right? That's very acquisition focused. But if you have a media sort of experience, you want people to come in, find you. They're going to have to find you through research, ads, through millions of other ways, right? They want to find you. And once they find you, you want them to make sure that the experience of signing up or seeing something about that product is so appealing that they go, I need this now. That's acquisition. And then to your point, to keep them coming back, that's the retention piece of the product manager. So these 
product managers are sort of solving different problems, but you're right. It's for the same exact application or the same sort of experience. You know, what I love about that and what I think is really breakthrough about that, and I'm guessing since you're such a digital person, it might not even seem that breakthrough to you, but in a traditional world, in a traditional product world, the two things you're talking about, one would be product and the other would be marketing. And very often they would be so totally separate that, you know, the product folks build a product and then at a certain point when they're ready to launch, they say, oh, marketers, come here, see this? We're going to need you to sell this. So better come up with a slogan, you know, or, or the colors right. for the box or whatever. That's your job. And of course, that's rarely a path to success. What I have often felt in the world of digital is that there are aspects of marketing that are obviously independent of the product. You know, you want to run an ad campaign, whatnot, but so much of successful, it's like even going back 20 years to something like Hotmail, right? Which was one of the early viral marketing successes, right? Just put a line at the bottom of every email that says, do you want Hotmail? Click here, you can get it too. And that was their number one way of marketing themselves. This idea that in the digital world, the marketing is most effective when it's really part of how the product fundamentally works. It's sort of self-marketing. And what I think is a breakthrough about what you're describing is you're not even calling it marketing anymore. You're just calling it an aspect of product management, which is how are we going to get people into the product? I think that's right. And I think it's really interesting. I love how you just said that. That actually makes me think about it also very differently because traditionally, as I've seen digital teams sort of behave in different companies, there's always this pull between product and other teams and a pull and push sort of thing. And it's very healthy in general. There's the sales teams, right? They sell something, then they come into you and say, we sold this, now go build it. You've got a week to do it. It's usually like something quite short like that. There is the marketing team. They think they're the leaders of product. There is the editorial team, right? They think that's their product. And then there's the product managers who think that's their product. It's really, it's none of the above. It's our product, right? It's all of our product. There's not multiple people sort of like leading this, it's like we're all building the same roadmap, building the same features that meet those KPI things that we talked about before. And whether it is acquisition, the acquisition product person or product leader is really working with the marketing team because they're spending money everywhere in the market in terms of ads. And he or she want to make sure that that money, when it is being spent, it's now being transferred into that product line in a way that's mature. So they don't want to do experiments on, say, they're making some changes on Android and they're running a lot of experiments, but the marketing spend is a lot on the Android side. You don't want to do it then. You want to make sure that everything is intended. So it's really important, I think, in general, to have the acquisition product leads plugged in with marketing and sales, having the retention product leads really plugged in with technical and also you know, marketing from time to time. It's not as prevalent usually, but more on the editorial probably day-to-day side. And that's very important. The product managers, I think for me, is always the most successful ones were the ones that made it work well, that didn't just skip this, it's mine and yours, and made it ours and led through from behind a little bit, right? Like sort of led by example, by sort of showing, you know, why it matters to do things a certain way. And that's not a skill that everybody has. I think we all tend to get a little bit involved emotionally in decision-making day-to-day, the true product leaders are the ones that go, you know, it's not about me. It's really about the success of the product. And I'm going to bring everybody on the same table to do this, right? Yes, yes. Winning digital customers, the antidote to irrelevance has been called the must-have guide to saving your company and is available now for Kindle, Nook, and Apple Books or in hardcover. Visit wdc.ht order to get your copy today. 
Yes, yes. Well, I'm glad you said that because as you were describing this, it made me think of the quote that in theory, theory and practice are the same, but in practice, they really are. You know, so yeah. <laughs> so the scenario you describe of everyone working together on a product team sounds absolutely right to me. I totally agree with what you're saying. And it makes me want to ask, what about when they don't? You know, what about when yeah. you have these different leaders and they have a different vision? And, you know, I hear you. I agree with you that, of course, you want to make sure that everybody is doing what they are doing, not for their own ego, et cetera, but for the success of the product. One of those in practice things that I experience is that, well, first of all, sometimes good people can genuinely have a different view of what's in the best interest of the product. And second of all, people can get committed to their own ideas and have a rationale as to why it's best for the product, even if it's not necessarily true. So I'm just curious, when you have so much leadership, how do you empower those teams to resolve conflict? Yeah, that's a really good point. So I've seen this in the past, and I'm not sold that you can't change somebody's mind through education, right? The best sort of way to do it generally that I found, you know, and again, I have failed at this in the past and I've had to learn from my mistakes. I'm continually learning to be better at this. But I think I find it that it, it's showing how things could be better over time to the leadership and having them so be inspired by the ideas and the ways of things being run does work. It does work. It, you know, some of them tend to micromanage. Some of them want to be involved in every single piece of every single decision. And it's really once they have the trust that you could do it or the team can do it as good as they can or even better in many cases, they will understand because like you said, it's not about them. It's really about the success of the company and the product. So uh, we'll see that. The other thing that I've also found is to bring in somebody from the outside, some sort of an agile coach, some sort of a, an inspiring leader and spend a week with them, spend a week with the whole mm-hmm. team. And then at the end of the week, they end up going, okay, these are the sort of problems I'm seeing. You know, sometimes it's nicer coming from somebody from the outside than it is coming from somebody in the house, right? Inside the family, it's a little bit sensitive from time to time. But when it comes from somebody from the outside, people tend to take that a little bit more seriously and not as, like you said, to your point, not as sensitively, right? That I've seen success in that. And I'm actually, that we do that. I've done that in, 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 in multiple places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to ask you about sort of team chemistry. Do you find there are some teams, I've noticed this, some teams just click. They work well together. They finish each other's sentences. And sometimes you could take people who work really well on other teams and you just put them together and they just, it doesn't seem to click. And I've I've always tried to figure that out. And honestly, I'm not sure I know what to do other than say, oh, maybe that's not the best people to work together. But what's your experience with that? Is there an art to the chemistry of putting the right people together? Or is it more about, how you do sort of team building and create a culture so that everyone can work together? Or what's your experience in the practical world of assembling teams that really click? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's two, honestly, I was going to go two very different directions as you were asking that question, but I'll just very quickly say on one level, if somebody's in the team and they're not clicking or they're not the right person for the team, you try and you try and find a solution for them because we all want that person to succeed. Their success is the success of the team. But when it's not right, it's not right. I think as a leader, you need to make that call and say, you know, sorry, this doesn't work. Every head counts as two in, in many of these teams. And I can't afford to not do that. But to the other flip side of that, which is when you're not seeing the innovation coming out of the team or when you're not seeing people clicking together to your point, what can you do? And there's multiple ways to do it. One thing that I like to do with the product team and, and, and sort of the leadership in UI UX is, they sort of bring people together and sort of run hackathons. 
and then that could be the engineering team that include a lot of other teams and you sort of like give them a challenge and it could be super high level or it could be some sort of a specific challenge for a specific brand within your company. And you say, okay, solve this. And you give them 24 hours to do it, right? You give them all the food, all the Red Bull, and then they come back after the 24 hours. They haven't slept. They all worked very, very hard. You see all the drama throughout the night, just like a TV show. You see it, right? As you're walking <laughs> like <big> around. brother. <laughs> exactly. Not any different. And then by the end of the night, the next morning, they're all very tired. They do the presentation and they're very proud of it. And one or two of them end up winning something, teams that is. And that, that ends up bringing people that typically don't work together. And you could bring people from sales and marketing to this and you start to see new interactions. And that's interesting. Another thing that I can do and, and I've done in the past and I continue to do is bring the product and UI UX team into product discussion. And you do it maybe once a week. And on that week, you talk about things you don't like in product. And it could be door handles. It could be air conditioning units, right? It could be things that you just don't appreciate. And I will take pictures and I'll show my team. I go, I don't understand why the remote has this thing on it. It's never made sense to me. It's so annoying. And we're all sort of like, almost compassionately come together into disliking this thing on the remote. And then you start to see, because the remote really is about the user interaction, like how the user is using it. I'm the user, I'm complaining to them, right? I'm showing them my feelings because I really want them to be interacting with the users of our products as often as possible. And then sometimes I show them something that I saw on another app. I go, isn't this great? Look at this. Whether it's a competitor or whether it's just an app that does something completely different. It's like, isn't this cool? And then we're sharing and then we have Slack channels and we have that hourly conversation. And at the end of that very first kickoff one, I'd be like, okay, you know, we'll form teams of one or two or all three, depending on how big your team is. And you'd be like, okay, go ahead, solve that problem. You got a week to do it. Show some wireframes, some sort of ideas, and let's come back at the end of the week and share it. And then it's like a week-long hackathon where people are just during their work hours and in between and outside of the work hours, they're just trying to solve this thing. So they, they work together and they do it. And at the end of the week, they get to present back to the team what they solved. I found great success in that, even with junior product managers that weren't inspired before. I mean, it's really about inspiring the team to think a little bit differently and be quick in their feet because they're all very smart people like in your team, right? They're obviously very smart. They ended up where they are for a reason. And you kind of just need to get them to that inspirational level where they're like, well, maybe they'll come up with something that will surprise you. And that's the point I think here is that you shouldn't just solve it for them. You should just give them the challenge going back to the earlier point. Yeah, more independence. You usually make those teams self-organizing or you, you put people on teams or you'll say, here's, a, here's 50 people at a hackathon. You guys figure out how you want to work together on different things. So on hackathons, depending how big the team is. So when you bring people from the outside, like, you know, we will open up to universities or people in the public you just naturally sort of let them fill in. If your internal company is quite large, if you have like 300 people in the hackathon or 200 people in the hackathon between engineering and every other team, you could probably let it be natural. What you don't want is five engineers in one team and five designers in one team. If the team is a little bit smaller, you end up sort of assigning it from the beginning. And then if you run hackathons every quarter, or every, you know, every year, then you end up like making sure that they all circulate around so they don't end up being with the same people every single time. For the week-to-week the -week one that I was mentioning before, the roundtable or the innovation sort of product thing, you end up, so we end up playing a game where basically we all pick a number, whoever's matched then end up being in like two together or three together. And that, that way it's completely random every single week. And for outside of hackathons, because I'm wondering how many of these same principles 
are beneficial the more day-to-day. Did you find you have standing teams? Like some companies have a product team that stays together for years, even moves from product yeah. to product. Whereas others, it's more, you know, you assemble a team, they work together for six weeks or six months, and then they sort of reach a natural end of something. And then they're sort of put back into the pool and then they get put back on another team. Do you have an opinion about one of those being more the right way or is it situationally dependent? What do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And honestly, there's multiple ways I, I can answer it. I will say, ideally, in my mind, in the perfect world, that a product manager wouldn't stay in this box for more than a quarter. You kind of move them from, let's just say they're acquisition product managers, you want to put them in retention for about three months to six months and then have them get a taste of that. You want somebody from like, if they're video focused and you just know they're your video people and they're really good at it, you want them to also work on the ad sales part, right? You don't want one person to be just that person. Let's just say you have one person that's the ad tech product person and they end up leaving you, right? Or getting promoted or moving another team or leaving the company, you've lost that. All that information, who they talk to, when they solve something, how they get around things, they've learned all that. Now they're on their own. They've taken all that with them. So what you might want to do is you might want every, again, three to six months, make sure that that person is teaching somebody else and they're being taught by somebody else into this like sort of role. So this way, if they end up leaving or promoted or moving on another team, you're also safe. It's kind of good for them in terms of picking up skills. And it's good for you because you're not left you know, with a gap in knowledge. But there is a little bit of forcing that as well, because some people are just really, really happy doing what they're doing. So you got to kind of find the balance making sure you don't end up putting somebody who's really, really happy in acquisition, put them in a technical role that they're miserable at. And now they're unhappy. And now you've turned a good apple into a bad apple. You know, you don't want that. I don't know if that's a perfect answer, to be quite honest. You got to kind of like take it case by case. But there is a, in my mind, a perfect rainbow scenario where you just sort of rotate everybody and everybody gets smarter and richer in knowledge. Yeah. It reminds me of one of those like executive training programs where someone moves and spends, you know, three months in finance. And at the end, it seems like the upside of something like that is at the end, you wind up with a much more well-rounded person. And the possible downside is it's a little more disruptive because people are constantly changing roles and changing uh, working relationships. But I can totally see the upside. Is there anything, if someone's implementing that, that they can do to help mitigate the downside, to make it easier to play that game of musical chairs without having it be disruptive to teams? That's a really good, good question, honestly. And I mean, I think it does come down to like how we also operate nowadays. I think people are more likely to be open to changes. I think generally, if we go back 20, 30 years, maybe even longer than that, people were sort of like staying in one job for a long time. And that, that was their sort of their career. The company was their career. And now I think people tend to move a little bit more frequently, you know, having a three to five year stint is quite a good stint actually at a place. I think as they want to market themselves, they also want to know that they've came in into this role and left with a sort of a different story, right? And sort of an upgraded version of who they are, a much more learned person, a smarter person than they've walked in. And in the interview, you see those stories, right? And you want to tell that story for yourself. It is really important to be more flexible and more mindful of wanting to learn and pick up more and not to be like, oh no, this is scary. I don't want to do this. I think that type of personality is harder to manage in general. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like acknowledging the modern reality that people need to always be thinking about building their resumes, 
versus the reality that's like the old school thinking of like you get into a company and you get into a job and a track and you right. learn and you get super good at that one thing, which is maybe less relevant today anyway, because that one thing, if you get too committed to it, it's going to go away anyway. Whatever you learn and become an expert at today, five years from now, forget it. Like it's all going to may change. not be around. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. And if, even if the concept is around like networking, the actual details of how you do it is going to have changed anyway, you know, versus a model that says, you're probably not going to be at this company for the rest of your career. I mean, we'd love you to be, but most people won't be because that's the world today. So let's be thinking now about how your experience here is creating more value for you. I think that's a great way of interacting with team members. It's a very forward thinking. And for a lot of companies, because they don't want to ever think about, you shouldn't be encouraging someone to build a resume, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. but, it's, but it's realistic, I think. It is. It is. And I think I've seen it at several places where they do that sort of encouragement of connecting two people that don't typically work together and or creating some sort of a program, internal management program. So that, okay, so new managers, how do you become a director? And you, you sort of get buddied up with somebody that helps you or mentors you through it. I've seen that program work in multiple places and it, and it can be very fruitful. People end up having this brand uh, ambition. They're really part of this brand. They love being part of this company. And you got to sort of like take advantage of that as, as an employer, right? You got to make sure that they feel invested. They like seeing the logo in places. You got to make sure that you repay that and show them that that matters to you as well. They matter to you equally, right? Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. Well, get enough of winning digital customers. You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. 100%. Well, I'm astonished to say we only have a couple minutes left. I feel like we just started talking, but I know this is we're out of time. I want to make sure I talk to you about measuring teams. And you and I had an interesting conversation the other day, and I want to quickly summarize it for our listeners. But we were talking about one of the challenges of product teams can be, you know, you talked earlier about KPIs and making sure teams understand, okay, what is the actual outcome we're looking to go after? But that it's not uncommon for executives or, you know, whatever, someone from above to come to a product team and have an idea, right? The thing they would like to see executed. And then as a product team owner, for example, or as a whole product team making decisions, you kind of have these choices. Of course, if you think that the idea from the executive is the very best possible way of achieving the KPI, well, then that's fantastic. But if yeah. you don't, and very often that might be the case, you have yeah. this choice. Am I being measured on making that person happy and fulfilling their creative vision? Or am I being measured on driving some actual business outcome, which might mean departing from their business vision? Well, it's an interesting dilemma that I think does come up a lot. I love it because it's one of those real world practical things. Like for all the concepts about how everything should work in the real world, executives are constantly telling product teams what to do. What do you think about that issue? And what is the best way to measure product teams, but whether with respect to that issue or other issues and whatever the solution to that is help with that riddle of the, uh, the KPI versus the, the executive ideas? Yeah. So I think the great question, by the way, and obviously to challenge everywhere we go, uh, but I'll just say it goes back to being our roadmap versus one person's roadmap or a product roadmap or an executive roadmap. And it's got to do for me that I've seen success with it is when I share the roadmap and share the rules of the roadmap. These are the rules of engagement. Any Shared with come from the anywhere. executive or the team or both? With everybody. Everybody's on the same table, whether it's the development team, whether it's the editorial team, whether it's the marketing team, whether it's the sales team, whether it's the executive team. Here's the list of ideas we have. 
We got them all from you. Here's how we score them. The things that are easy to do that have high KPI impact. And this is a pretty standard model, right? Versus things that are very, very hard to do that have almost no impact. And this is the scale. Let's score things together. We score things together every single week, right? And then we all see the, the final score and they get to score their own ideas. That's the part of it. It's like, even if they're biased, they're not going to be able to sort of like say, oh, well, it doesn't really increase revenue. Yeah, this wouldn't increase revenue. I like the idea of doing this thing for retention. Okay, well, let's see how good it is in retention. Let's look at the KPIs. Which ones do you think it selects? And it's like, oh, you know what? This only does the one KPI. Yes, out of like the 50 score, this probably scores like very low. And having them score their own ideas does two things. You don't have to sell something else on top of it, right? You don't have to say, well, this is better than your idea. We're going to do that first. The process already does that. And the other thing it does, it sort of inspires the thought of the key performance indicators being the most important thing. So now they themselves as executives or salespeople or marketing or editorial or product, everybody's going to be like, well, I need to make sure that the rubric works in my favor. So I'm going to come up with ideas that feed into the KPI. And then it sort of reverses it rather than having the argument or the, the unpleasant conversation. It's the inspiration of like, now I need to come up with ideas that fill in this rubric in a good way. But it's got to come to agreeing to the rules of engagement right from the beginning. And it has, again, to do with a lot of the education and filling in time. I'll just say one last thing. There's also a loophole in all of this. And it's got to do with obligations. Because we all have obligations to do in product outside of the day-to-day -day things that can be prioritized. And with obligations, they're set with a date. Somebody sold something. It's going to make the company a lot of money. And it might not score the way the KPI tree you have worked. You're just going to have to do it. You got to like slate it into your road. Oh, that's a, that's another KPI. You know, yeah. that's another oh, KPI. Exactly. It's the KPI yeah. of someone's paying us to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And then some other obligations don't end up being very fruitful money-wise, but they mean a lot for some other, other reason and you just got to do it, right? So for those, you have like an obligation. You just, you don't actually do it through the roadmap in the intake sort of process. You do it sort of outside and say, yep, this one has a label on it of obligation. We just have to do it. Well, I love the idea there of creating a framework, a rubric that everyone agrees to. One thing I always say is it's a lot easier to agree to agree than it is to agree. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so the hack that I hear you describing is, well, first, let's agree on how we're going to agree. What's the framework and the scoring? And then yeah. let's do the scoring. And then you might be like, oh, man, I love that idea, but darn, it didn't score yeah. well. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you know, versus oh, having I someone really else. I thought it was going to score well. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Right. I, I really thought it was going to score well. I can't believe it didn't score so well. Oh, well, now I need to move on to something that will score well. Yeah. Yeah. And at least, you know, it got, it got seriously considered and seriously worked through, you know? I, I love that because it also prevents the team from rejecting ideas that come from on high that maybe actually are good ideas. You know, it, it right. puts everything, like you said, on a level playing field. I have to ask you one more question in overtime here, which is I, I agree with everything you said. I think it sounds great. And sometimes, in my experience, even when you do all the KPI stuff and you're like, okay, we've, we've made all these decisions based on the KPI, sometimes it turns out the team is wrong. They launch yeah. the product and it doesn't do well. How yeah. do you deal with those situations in a way that is most beneficial to the overall culture and product teams being successful in the long run? Yeah, really good question. So I think... KPI is like a data point and it's like a guesstimate data, data point where you're like, I think it's an experiment, just like we did in science class when we were younger, right? I think yeah. by adding this sort of like chemical and that chemical, this is the reaction I'll get. You got like a 
observation and a conclusion you see if you're right. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like that. You're I hated like doing lab reports, by the way. That oh, was I just I, I just chemistry. couldn't stand it. I like yeah. the experiment part, but man, writing yeah. up those lab reports was a was a chore. But anyway, sorry, yeah. I digress. I was never a chemistry person. I have to be honest. Physics I loved. I could never understand chemistry. But let's just take it back a little bit. But what if that experiment wasn't that big to begin with, right? What if it wasn't, I'm going to build a building? What if you were just going to build a door or the front door of one ground floor building? You know, that's all the whole building is, it's just the ground floor. And if you start there and then end up not getting, you know, because the metrics now, the data is coming in, which is the, your guess. And then the, the data coming out is like, oh, we just did this experiment. And again, back to the observation conclusion, the conclusion showed me that my experiment was not a success as I expected it to be, then you failed really quickly, right? You failed very early rather than you'd, you build a 15-story building only to find it not to be the right building to build. So I think right there, that's what's important is to sort of make the experiment small, make it frequent so that when you fail, you don't fall right on your face, right? It's a small experiment with a small amount of failure but it just means when it does go well, you know, you get the confidence that you can now build a few more stories on top of that ground floor. And now the experiment is a bit more worth your while. There's no guarantees, but at least now you have a lead. You have some data to tell you that you're on the right path, right? Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's how I think of it. Yeah. You know, you made me think of something. It's a story from a long time ago, but I ran a workshop once with a very, very large pharmaceutical company. And it was all about how could we use digital to speed up clinical trials of drugs? That's what the particular session was about. But I had an opportunity to talk to the guy who was the head of research and development for this giant, giant multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical company. And so one of the top people in the whole company, and I said to him, um, wow, you know, you must have like to get where you are in this industry, you must have like really spearheaded some big blockbuster drugs or like, how did you become like the head of research and development for one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world? And he said to yeah. me, you know, I have worked on over 50 different drugs as like a researcher and a scientist and all these different things he did on his way up, 50 different drugs. He said, not one of them ever made it to market. Oh, wow. But yeah. I'm now the head of research yeah. development, meaning there's so much respect for the process yeah. of doing the research and doing the clinical trials and testing and seeing that he could get to the top of his profession, never having had one that actually made it all the way through the market because everyone recognized that, you know, failure and the whole process is is what it's all about. It's not being judged by who happened to have worked on the drug that ultimately made it through. So I just, I never right. forgot that guy. You know, I was like, that's yeah. just amazing. Failed his yeah, way all the way to the great. top, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's a really good story. That's awesome. Well, Michael, this has been fantastic. I had no doubt that we would have an amazing conversation and we did. So hopefully this has been really helpful for everyone that's listening. I suspect it has. Is there anything you want to plug or if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? What should they do? There's honestly, I wish I was that interesting. There is nothing about me that is, that is interesting. I think you know me well by now. I like beer and whiskey. That is like the only thing that I can think of. But honestly, there is, I don't have anything to plug in at all. No. Watch Fox. Download the, all the Fox apps. That's <laughs> right. Michael's, yes. Michael's KPIs. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly right. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Winning Digital Customers Show. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm.
on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal best-selling book that inspired the podcast.